Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Demand for United States Masks Collapses by Bob Tita. Then Amanda Forum wrote Aspirin, a pioneering wonder drug. Then Generation ZZZ, Young Adults Are Turning In Earlier by Rachel Wolf. Then Rolf Winkler and Joe Graven McKinty wrote, Musk's brain chip takes big first step. And we'll follow that up with an article by Mike Kerrigan, Let Beauty Nourish and Move You. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first, Demand for U.S. Mass Collapses. United States made masks and gloves became a national priority during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now the manufacturers need a lifeline of their own. Domestic production of protective medical equipment that was in short supply during the pandemic is now collapsing as hospitals and other health care buyers return to foreign-based suppliers. About 70% of the 100 or so United States mask companies launched during the pandemic have closed, according to industry estimates. United States production of N95 and surgical masks fell by more than 90% in 2023 from 2021 levels after elimination of masking requirements knocked out consumer demand. As overseas supply chains faltered in early 2020, the federal government doled out an estimated $1.5 billion to companies building United States plants to make synthetic rubber gloves, N95 respirators, surgical masks, and other protection gear, according to government and industry reports. Many of those plants now sit idle, unfinished or operating at far below their capacity, underscoring the challenges of reshoring manufacturing that mostly left the United States years ago. As soon as COVID ended and the supply chain disruption ended, All the hospitals in the United States went right back to buying them from overseas. They're not doing anything to protect themselves, said Todi Gazinski, president of New York-based Medigen Medical Products. United States makers of gloves and masks are calling on the Biden administration to help preserve domestic production capacity as a hedge against future pandemics and cross-border supply disruptions. The Department of Health and Human Services has asked Congress for $400 million to maintain preparedness programs started during the pandemic, including expanding domestic production of protection gear. We're just at the beginning of needing to reestablish this industrial base in the United States, said Dawn O'Connell, HHS Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response during a congressional hearing last year. Government spending on the national stockpile of personal protection gear for emergencies accounts for about 3% of the total annual spending in the United States on masks, 
gloves, and other protection items. Domestic manufacturers said hospitals, the nation's biggest spenders, haven't been willing to accommodate the manufacturers' higher costs and smaller production volumes in the aftermath of the pandemic. Many hospitals were obligated to resume purchases from foreign suppliers under previous multi-year contracts once supply chain bottlenecks abated, according to the American Hospital Association's Group for Healthcare Resource and Materials Management. Back in 2020, United Safety Technology started planning to produce nitrile rubber gloves when supply chain problems in Asia exposed the lack of production capacity and new raw materials in the United States. The company received nearly $100 million from the federal government in 2021 that went toward a glove plant near Baltimore. Chief Executive Dan Isaski expects to complete the plant early this year, enabling the company to make up to 2.6 billion gloves annually, or about 2% of gloves consumed in the United States. He said the United States faces uncertainty. He has no orders, and while negotiations are underway with several large hospital networks, purchasers are sensitive about paying more for domestic gloves. Hospitals are incentivized to cut costs and save money. And now, aspirin, a pioneering wonder drug. For ages, the most reliable medical advice was also the most simple. Take two aspirin and call me in the morning. This cheap pain reliever, which also thins blood and reduces inflammation, has been a medicine cabinet staple ever since it became available over-the-counter nearly 110 years ago. Willow bark, a distant ancestor of aspirin, was a popular ingredient in ancient remedies to relieve pain and treat skin problems. Hippocrates, the father of medicine, was a firm believer in willow's curative powers. For women with gynecological troubles in the 4th century BC, he advised burning the leaves until the steam enters the womb. That willow bark could reduce fevers wasn't discovered until the 18th century. Edward Stone, an English clergyman, noticed its extremely bitter taste was similar to that of the chinchona tree, the source of the costly malaria drug quinine. Stone tried the bark and dosed himself to treat a fever. When he felt better, he tested the powder on others suffering from aju or malaria. When their fevers disappeared, he reported triumphantly to the Royal Society in 1763 that he had found another malaria cure. In fact, he had identified a way to treat its symptoms. Willows contain salicin, a plant hormone with anti-inflammatory, fever-reducing, and pain-relieving properties. Experiments with salicid and its byproduct, salicylic acid, began in earnest in Europe in the 1820s. In 1853, Charles Frederick Gerhardt, a French chemist, discovered how to create acetylsalicylic acid, the active ingredient in aspirin, but then abandoned his research and died young. There is some debate over how aspirin became a blockbuster drug for the German company Bayer. Its official history credits Felix Hoffman a Bayer chemist 
with synthesizing it in 1897 in hope of alleviating his father's severe rheumatic pain. Bayer patented aspirin in 1899, and by 1918 it had become one of the most widely used drugs in the world. But did Hoffman work alone? Shortly before his death in 1949, author Eigengun, a Jewish chemist who had spent World War II in a concentration camp, published a paper claiming that Bayer had erased his contribution. In 2000, the British Medical Journal published a study supporting Eisengrun's claim. Bayer, which became part of the Nazi-backing conglomerate IG Farben in 1925, has denied that Eisengrun had a role in the breakthrough. Aspirin shed its associations with the Third Reich after IG Farben sold off Bayer in the early 1950s but the drug's pain-relieving hegemony was fleeting. By 1956, Bayer's British affiliate brought acetaminophen to the market. Ibuprofen became available in 1962. The drug's fortunes recovered after the New England Journal of Medicine published a study in 1989 that found the pill reduced the threat of a heart attack by 44%. Some public health officials promptly encouraged anyone over 50 to take a daily aspirin as a preventive measure. But as was with the case with Reverend Stone, it seems the science is more complicated. In 2022, the United States Preventive Services Task Force officially advised against taking the drug prophylactically, given the risk of internal bleeding and the availability of other therapies. Aspirin may work wonders, but it can't work miracles. And now, Generation ZZZ, Young Adults Are Turning In Earlier, by Rachel Wolf. So much for parties, clubs, and bars. When the late hours strike on a Saturday night, the place to be for more young adults is asleep in bed. Today's 18 to 35-year-olds say that they understand the link between sleep and health better than people once did, with many seeing the long and short-term benefits of more shut-eye. Younger people also say they take comfort in seizing control over their bedtime routines, finding solace in saying no to even a late-night dinner. Businesses have adjusted in turn, with bars adding matinee dance parties and other daytime events. In 2022, those in their 20s reported getting an average of 9 hours and 28 minutes of sleep, according to analysis of American Time Use survey data by Rent Cafe. That's an 8% increase from the 8 hours and 47 minutes they said they slept in 2010. Those in their 30s and 40s saw smaller increases. Bedtimes are also creeping earlier. An analysis of over 2 million total sleep number smart bed customers found that those between 18 and 34 went to bed at 10.06 p.m. on average in January, compared with 10.18 p.m. last January. Emma Kraft, a 19-year-old junior at the University of California, Berkeley, spent her sophomore year living in a sorority house with 65 other women and still managed to clock her nine-hour minimum of shut-eye. For me, nothing good happens after 9 p.m., says Kraft, who tries to be asleep by 9.30 every night. 
Far from feeling like an outsider, Kraft says she's been bombarded with requests from friends for help shifting their own bedtimes earlier. All of a sudden, it's so much cooler and way more accepted to sleep early, and everyone has just adapted, Kraft said. Madeline Sugg, 25, adopted a loose 9 p.m. bedtime after moving to Tulsa, Oklahoma in November. Instead of bar hopping into the wee hours like she often had on weekends, Sugg now says she now sees a jazz show with one group of friends at 6 p.m. every Monday and grabs drinks with another group at 5 p.m. on Thursdays. I was afraid of that feeling of FOMO or fear of missing out, or a feeling like I'm not succeeding at building a community. But it's actually turned out to be an improvement in all these areas, said Sugg, a financial operations analyst. She says the shift is saving her hundreds of dollars a month on late-night food and drinks. Businesses used to welcoming night owls are reporting this change of behavior, too. Seatings between 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. now make up 31% of Yelp reservations, up from 19% in 2017. The proportion of reservations between 6 p.m. and midnight have declined in tandem. In New York City, bars are experimenting with early dance parties for those who want to get down during daylight hours. Joyface in the East Village has hosted four matinees since Halloween, that started 5 p.m. On New Year's Eve, revelers counted down to 2024 at 8 p.m. The wait list that night was 200 people long, owner Jennifer Shore says. We order pizza for everyone. It peaks at 8 p.m. Then everyone can still be in bed by 11, she says. John Winkleman says he's seen swing sleep from a long snub facet of medicine to an occasionally overhyped cure-all in his 30 years in the field. The chief of the Sleep Disorders Clinical Research Program at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston says he's happy to see more people taking their sleep seriously, but says there is a thing as too seriously. People are getting a bit neurotic about it, he says. He doesn't see any intrinsic benefit to turning in earlier unless you have to wake up at 3 a.m., but touts the benefits of a consistent bedtime and getting somewhere between seven and nine hours. Will and Kelsey Turgulan say they laugh and sometimes decline if friends invite them out to an 8 p.m. dinner on a Friday. We're like, oh my gosh, that's so late, says 33-year-old Will, who runs an e-commerce consulting business from the couple's home in Austin, Texas, and is usually in bed by 8.30. It's a big departure from their lifestyle before the pandemic when 30-year-old Kelsey worked in an office downtown and got home around 7. Now the Tejolans work out during their lunch breaks and fold laundry and prep dinner in the afternoons. Kelly Baskin, a voice actor in Los Angeles who also worked from home, says embracing an early bedtime was about saying no to hustle culture and accepting that she requires a full nine hours of sleep. I always thought that it made me look lazy and I tried to fight it, said Baskin, 32. Baskin, who tries to be in bed between 8 and 9 every night, says a destigmatization of early bedtimes on social media helped motivate her. A third of my For You page right now is people going to bed early, she says of her TikTok feed. 
The videos are part of the soft girl trend that highlights slow-paced indoor activities like journaling, sipping a cup of tea, or performing a calming nighttime wind-down routine. Videos with the hashtag have been viewed a collective 2.9 billion times on TikTok. Kraft, the Berkeley junior, says some events on campus are starting earlier than they did when she was a freshman. But not everything. The fraternities, I would say, have not quite caught onto the trend, she jokes. And now Musk's brain chip takes first big step. Elon Musk wants to augment perfectly healthy people with brain chips so the human race can keep up with artificial intelligence. That is how he has described the ultimate aims of his brain-computer interface company, Neuralink. It will take years of research and successful demonstrations of the technology before such an aggressive goal is even remotely possible. In the meantime, the company moved a step closer to a significant scientific advance, one that offers hope to thousands of people with debilitating conditions such as quadriplegia who could eventually regain loss function. Musk recently tweeted that Neuralink had implanted its first brain chip in a human. He said the patient is recovering well, and he suggested that the implant had successfully registered signals from neurons, or nerve cells that transmit information to other cells. It is an impressive feat, people in the industry said, not least because the company had to convince the Food and Drug Administration that its technology is safe in order to proceed. It also suggests that the implant is functioning as the company expects it should be based on its tests in monkeys and pigs. This isn't the first brain chip that offers to restore function for people who have lost control of their limbs, said Robert Desimone, director of the McGovern Institute for Brain Research at MIT, but Neuralink's advanced technology is intriguing, he said. They need sufficient time to work out any kinks in the system, sufficient time to see what its capabilities are, and sufficient time to collect safety data to make sure it does not cause any problems, Desimone said. Assuming all that checks out, I can't think of what would keep them from moving forward in additional patients. The company said last May that it had received approval from the FDA for its test. An FDA spokeswoman said that the company provided sufficient information to support approval of its application to begin human trials and declined to comment further. Musk hasn't disclosed any information about the patient outside of his tweets. Founded in 2016, Neuralink was valued at $3.5 billion in a round of equity financing raised back in November, according to PitchBook. The company competes with a handful of other brain-computer interface companies, including Synchron, which has developed a stent-like device that has been implanted inside the jugular vein on top of a patient's brain, said Precision Neuroscience, which has temporarily implanted its microelectrolyte array in six patients to capture test data. Musk is known for setting outlandish goals. He wants his rocket company SpaceX to send humans to Mars. The idea of turning humans into cyborgs might be just as ambitious. Even if he falls short, a lot could be accomplished on the way. Neuralink's brain chip, which is called the N1, is about the size of a quarter, 
with dozens of threads that are implanted into brain tissue. Each thread has more than a dozen electrodes. The surgery is like replacing a chunk of your skull with a smartwatch, Musk has said, and then sewing the threads into the brain tissue so they sit close to neurons and relay their electrical signals. The company developed a special robot, the R1, which inserts the threads in a fraction of a second. The needle and threads are thinner than a human hair. The robot must take special care to dodge sensitive parts of the vascular system to avoid brain bleeds, a task made harder because the brain moves slightly even when the skull is immobile. Reading neural signals and then relaying them to a computer or mobile device holds the key to restoring function for the disabled. Assisting technology already does this. BlackRack Neurotech makes a device called the Utah Array that has been used successfully to help patients move a robotic arm with their thoughts or feed themselves, the company has said. Neuralink's potential advance would be its flexible threads, said MIT's Desimone, that will move with the brain to avoid the possibility of damage. Another potential advance is how much information Neuralink's chip could read from the brain, experts said. For now, many questions remain unanswered about what the company has done and what its technology will actually achieve in a human subject. Those include how long a patient will be able to tolerate the chip that has been implanted. Some competitors have only tried a human implant for a limited period, such as during a different surgery where a device was temporarily installed to gather data before being immediately removed. Other unknowns cited by specialists include what signals the chip can read and for how long, because signals might deteriorate if brain tissue grows around the inserted threads. The signals also have to prove useful for restoring something like motor function. Neuralink must show not only that a technology works, but that it offers significant benefits, enough to justify a very complex surgery. Nothing but time can answer many of these questions. Watching Neo learn Kung Fu in the Matrix, I remember thinking, wow, I want to work on making that possible, said another Neuralink co-founder, DJ Sao, at a Neuralink presentation two years ago. Today, I believe this is a tractable engineering challenge. The same presentation, Musk himself described how increasing the rate at which data is uploaded from our brains to our devices is the fundamental limitation, and he thinks we need to address this to mitigate the long-term risk of artificial intelligence and just go along for the ride. And now, let beauty nourish and move you. If a good cry is cleansing, consider me Mr. Clean. My eyes frequently well up before the transcendence. And the experience is more than cleansing. Beauty nourishes the soul. When something beautiful moves you to tears, you can be confident that you're seeing the cosmos and you're placing it rightly, if only for a moment. Often that's all that the world allows, yet it's enough, since the sublime is never so much discovered as recovered. For a quick recalibration, I have two favorites. One is a ballad and the other a short work of fiction, but each repays its brief encounter with the eternal. The first is Mr. Tanner, a song by Harry Chapin 
from his 1973 album, Short Stories. The lyrics tell the tale of Martin Tanner, a launderer and baritone with a heavily, heavenly voice, whose French friends urge him to try singing professionally. He does, but critics cruelly pan his efforts. Wounded, he never sings again, except when he's alone at night sorting clothes in his darkened store. The cautionary lesson is glorious. Do what you love, not for money or acclaim, but for its own reward. This innocence is what Mr. Tanner, who once sang from his heart and he sang from his soul, but he did not know how well he sang, it just made him whole, had lost. In The Last Leaf, a short story by O. Henry, first published in 1905, Mike Behrman is an unsuccessful artist who finally delivers on his promise to paint the masterpiece. He does so only when he learns the beauty of sacrificial love. I won't spoil the ending by revealing why the artist's painting is so beautiful. But if loving is willing the good of another, and perfect love is doing this to the point of self forgetfulness, Mr. Bamman painted a masterpiece when he learned to love perfectly. The painter was miserable until he lifted his gaze to the transcendent. The baritone was happy until he took, took his eyes off it. Thankfully, paradise lost can be regained. It requires redirection towards this world's beauty, which hints at greater glory of the world to come. These works are beautiful not because of the artists who created them. The artists created them because they're beautiful. Gifts like singing and painting imply a giver with those joyfully perfected habits in whose eyes their sharing is the greatest gramercy imaginable. Give the song a listen and the story a read. Each takes only minutes, and if neither summons tears, seek other chances to let beauty arrest you. Not to try would be a crying shame. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I will be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.